You're listening to episode 23 of the NASA and Silicon Valley podcast. With 2016 winding down and 2017 just over the horizon, I thought we'd do something a little different to close the year out. This episode will be our end of year clip show, highlighting some of our favorite conversations this year. So in case you missed any of these episodes, feel free to dig through the podcast feed and find the whole episode. I hear it's perfect to listen to on any long holiday road trips or flights. Per usual, we use the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley and the Twitter handle at NASA Ames. Also, leave us a review or comment in whatever podcast app you use. Those reviews really help others discover the content. And of course, you can also get a plethora of NASA and Silicon Valley information on nasa.gov Ames. Let's go ahead and jump right into the show. NASA's exploration spans the universe, observing the sun and its effects on Earth, delving deep into our solar system, looking beyond the worlds around other stars, probing the mysterious structures and origins of our universe. Everywhere imaginable, NASA is out there. This first conversation is with Thomas Barclay, who works on the Kepler Space Telescope, which has located thousands of exoplanets, including Earth-like planets in the Goldilocks zone. Here's Tom talking about how NASA engineers kept the telescope up and running despite some technical difficulties. Yeah, in, in 2013, we lost the second of four reaction wheels. So reaction wheels are just um, spinning heavy discs. They, they kind of look a little bit like, wheels, like maybe, d- dumbbells almost, you know, okay. if you're on, on weights, these, these things. Okay. And they, they spin around. And so by spinning them at the right speed, you can change the pointing mm. of the spacecraft. You, okay. you can minutely adjust how the spacecraft's pointing. But, you know, we live in a, a universe that has three dimensions. Yes, and absolutely. And with two spinning wheels, you can't control three dimensions. And so we were, we were stuck until uh, a, some of the genius engineers... Because one uh, of those wheels literally stopped working. Two, two of them literally two stopped. Of them. Two, two of the four. So we started with four, one okay. backup. Two of them stopped working. <laughs> and so we we didn't have a method to accurately control the spacecraft, and so, yeah, so it was just kind of like pointing where, just kind of circling around. Exactly. Kind yeah. Um, you know, we we could hold it loosely, but but not precise pointing. Okay. Um, and then engineers, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> they they come up with crazy stuff. It's the funny thing about engineers is they spend, especially working on NASA projects, they spend most of their life being very conservative because we launch very big, expensive missions and, and they have to think to of contingencies bad. and they don't want anything to go wrong. But suddenly we had a mission that didn't work and there were basically in- no rules. You, if you can find a method to do something interesting, because you get this like multi-million it. dollar, <laughs> you have this this huge telescope. You went through all the effort to put the thing in space, mm-hmm. and then you know it's great for four years, and then these things stop working. It's like, well, we got it up there. What can you do with this? <laughs> yeah, and you know, you see the these engineers who are suddenly it's they're the like, creative thinking. This is what I I was trained to do. This is what I <laughs> dreamed of doing. And their bright eyes, and they get to come up with methods of, of pointing the spacecraft and so okay. the one that uh, the, the one out was was to use two wheels to control uh two axes of the spacecraft okay so, so what we call pitch and yaw okay so if you think of the spacecraft as a you know a, a soda can uh pitch and, and yaw the up and down and right left and right um uh, of of the soda can looking out at one direction um, but that left a free axis, and that would be the roll. That would be the the spinning of the soda can in, in your hands. Yeah. Um, 
uh, around the cir- circular side. Um, so how do you control that? Yeah. And the method to control it is, well, the spacecraft has a shape and it's kind of symmetrical almost mm-hmm. if you look at it in one, one and in that direction so uh, what's causing the spacecraft to not point accurately mm-hmm. uh, what what's what's making it it roll and that's the sun the sun itself is is sending out a lot of a lot of energy a lot of particles a lot mm-hmm. of photons and mostly it's particles and 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 those we call this the solar wind. Yeah. And this solar wind is trying to push the spacecraft away from away from where it wants to point. But by balancing the spacecraft against this solar wind, the okay. solar pressure, you can kind of keep it in, in, in stable pointing. So you have like the two wheels, are, are they're keeping at least two points, but it yeah. keeps spinning around. But if you get it right in the right way, mm-hmm. you can kind of take advantage of the force that the sun exerts to stabilize. That's right. And that's what you're doing. Um, and and so this is this is not entirely stable. So uh, yeah. once we start to sort of roll away from the thing, um, that will start to accelerate. You know, this is okay. an equilibrium, but it's it's not entirely stable. So we can hold this for a few hours, and then it starts to roll away. So we fire a thruster to put us back <laughs> to, to pull it back, pull it back, and this is how we go. So so what we do is we point at a, a field for roughly three months okay. and every six hours or so we fire a thruster to put us back and then we slowly roll away, fire a thruster, it puts Pull us back there. to where we want to be. And and this keeps us pointing extremely accurately Oh wow! Uh, for, for a long, long time. We are on a journey to Mars. Today, our robotic scientific explorers are blazing the trail. Together, humans and robotics will pioneer the next leap in exploration. Our next clip is from Darlene Lim, who is working on a project that is specifically testing how humans will conduct science on the Red Planet. Basalt is um, an analog research project, and um, the the premise of it is that we do real science, non-simulated science, out in the field, but under simulated Mars mission conditions. So our field sites are, one is in Idaho at Craters of the Moon National Monument and Preserve, and the other one is in the Hawaii Volcanoes um, National Park on the Big Island around Kilauea. And so the two sites represent to us um, very interesting volcanic environments which have a strong analogy or comparison to Mars. Mars has undergone a lot of volcanic activity. There uh, is basalt, you know, throughout the surface of Mars, which mm-hmm. is basalt is a type of volcanic rock. Yeah. But what we're curious about in these two um, settings, these two volcanic settings, is Idaho represents a sort of present day Mars. It's not a perfect okay. analog. There's never a perfect analog yeah, on of Earth. Course. But you can breathe the air. You can breathe the air, exactly. There's exactly there's oxygen, and so, um, you know. But the thing about uh, Idaho is it's dormant, and okay. we know that it's a shield volcano. It's a volcano which is in a very interesting environment. Um, uh, in and it's it's in the United States, so it's quite easy for us to access. And then there's another volcanic setting that we work to, which is in Hawaii, which is active, and so that's more representative of conditions in early Mars, where you have these, um, what are called fumaroles, so these very hot kind of vent-like environments, um, where there are some interesting minerals that are getting deposited around mm-hmm. these these vents. Now, what, no, so the geology of these two areas has been, you know, fairly well characterized, p- particularly around, around Hawaii. But what has not necessarily been done, where the knowledge gap was, was trying to relate the geology of these okay. two volcanic settings to the type of um, microbial life that is associated with these with these two settings. Okay, and so we wanted to do that as a foundational piece yeah, to kinda. understanding 
are there differences between these two sites, one more active than the other, yeah. one that has potentially undergone a longer period of what's called water rock interactions or alterations than the other? Okay. And then what is the net result? And so we had our first um, field program that yeah. took place in June. Okay. Um, and we're already seeing some amazing science results around the biology. And, and what is that? look like? Is there like a master control and you have a bunch of right. scientists kind of like walking through the field collecting samples and they're talking back and forth? Or Yeah, no, that's a great question. Like, so normally, if we yeah. did this and it wasn't under these simulated Mars mission conditions, okay. you know, we'd just take a crew of 15 people, a bunch of grad students, and we'd stay out there, there. eat our lunch all day. Yes. The difference is that the Mars architectures that have been developed dictate that there are, are say, two to four people that are out um, doing at any point in time, you know, doing a, a traverse, an EVA. Um, and so what we simulated is the case that you have two people that are out on the surface of Mars, and they are the ones that are um, in direct contact mm -hmm. with two other buddies, essentially, that are on Mars sitting in a control station, let's say, a you know, a, a pressurized hab. And those four people are interacting, and they're um, looking at the timeline, looking at how much life support they have. So let's say it's four hours worth of life support. And then having to go out and conduct a traverse, which is in line with science objectives yeah. that have been dictated by a broader science team. And that science team is on Earth. Okay. And they are desperate for results, and that's the reality, actually, that we deal with because it's real science. They're okay. desperate for solid results so they can make discoveries, so they can publish papers, so they can test hypotheses. Okay. And those scientists sit 50 kilometers away from the action. And do, we, you, do you add the delay and all we that? We add stuff? the delay. So this, the scientists, um, you know, it's crazy because looking <laughs> back eight months ago, we came up with, I think, 468 technical require, requirements. Yeah that had to be implemented to make this whole mission work. Okay. And this was driven by the science, it was driven by the operational research requirements, all sorts of things. Yeah. So when the scientists sit in the back room, they are linked, they're connected to what's going on, you know, in quotation marks on Mars that yeah. is out, night, out in the craters of the moon um, by voice. They can see, they can okay. hear what's going on, but it's on delay. They can see what's going on because we have video connection. We have still images that are coming back that are um, taken in very specific ways following very specific procedures. So the scientists can see the rocks. They can make okay. determinations of what they're seeing. Technology drives exploration. We develop, test, and fly transformative capabilities in cutting-edge exploration technologies. Our technology development provides the on-ramp for new ideas, maturing them from early stage through flight and giving wings to the innovative economy. One example of that on-ramp for new ideas comes from Alex Mazzari in the NASA Ames Space Shop. Here he is talking about how an open facility can help spark new ideas. The Space Shop is very, very, very unique in the federal government in the sense that it's a completely open facility. And when I mean open, anyone who is agency personnel can come and use it. Okay. With the proper paperwork and the right you know, authorizations, yeah, they can your come. Your boss has got to be okay with it. Exactly. Right. You have to be, they have to understand what you're doing with your time and approve that that's something that you, know, you could do. And uh, you're able to come in and use all the equipment. And as I noted, okay. it's very diverse, right? You have laser yeah. cutters, a huge variety of 3D printers, uh, everything to a bandsaw and a drill press and power tools. And these are things that you typically don't have access to in your office. Yeah, you get some <laughs> office and they're like, okay, now you got to go through procurement. Yep. Go through a whole process yep. to buy yep. this setup or a 3D printer. And some people may have it, some may not. But this is a cool place where if you don't, like, 
have a whole bunch of stuff all together. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. And and the combination of these things, I mean, it's been attempted a couple of times throughout the agency, but maybe with not as much uh, trust in the individual <laughs> employees, right? The little bit of supervision, you have to be there the whole time. You can't leave anyone unattended. You have to do the work for them, for mm-hmm. example, if they're using a certain type of equipment. And the way our paperwork is formatted is that you get trained to a point where you can handle this equipment. By okay. yourself. And NASA so it's has not like just a free for all. It's like, oh, no. all right, you want to come use it? Awesome. We're yeah, not going to make you right. buy the stuff. Right. Here's a place you can work. But kind of train them up. And learn how there's to a lot it. of safety protocols, right? Yeah. I mean, legal was involved, safety was involved. They approved everything step by step. There's job hazard analysis reports that okay. everyone must read before using the equipment, all this stuff, right? Okay. And, and we make sure they get to a certain standard so that they are not posing a very large danger to themselves. Right? <laughs> yes. And um, yeah, but they're able to work on their prototypes and and I loved it. So I stayed around, helped it. And I've kind of refocused the facility within the last couple of years, which originally was primarily just for uh, low fidelity prototyping. People kind of... uh, By low fidelity, what do you mean? By low fidelity, I mean just uh, very, very, very basic types of printing were available. Very low grade, desktop grade FDM printing. I mean, the facility started, right? And as you know, when you get funds, you have to kind of distribute it, especially for that type of facility. So you have a little bit of everything. But the emphasis on little bit kind of bothered some of the directorates. The usage wasn't what it could have been and should have been. And it's definitely not what it is now. And the way we got to where we are is by understanding what people needed. Okay. What a research center really needs and what a research center tends to use the most often, what people people were requesting in terms of materials, in terms of additive processes, and turnaround times, more importantly. Making sure that you can go from A to B really quickly is kind of the whole purpose of an in-house facility, right? It is kind of unique when people think of NASA centers or you have like the big ones that are launching rockets or training humans for spaceflight. I mean, we're at NASA Ames, like in Silicon Valley, it's a research center. Yeah. And so you're starting like the ideas, the nuggets of the ideas that will be exactly. instrumentation on curiosity or on into the space station. Right. Like the beginning of those ideas. I mean, from, from what it seems, Ames is, tends to do very well in terms of progressing the, the technology readiness level okay. of stuff, right? That's like one of the, the, the core objectives of the research centers is to take something that's a nine or an eight and bring it down to something that might be usable, like a six or a seven or, you know, okay. something that you could take a chance on and something that your management would be more comfortable with you testing. And what better place to do that than a prototyping facility where if yeah. you have a crazy idea, you can take a, a you know a piece of cardboard and, and laser cut it to the right dimensions. And we if you don't know how to CAD, we teach you how to CAD. And you know within a couple of days, you got something. Oh, wow. And you show the right people, you know convince the right people, you throw in the right proposals, all the innovation you know. You know, funds that are out there. And yeah, before you know it, you get funded and it becomes a project. NASA's fleet of satellites, its airborne missions, and researchers address some of the critical challenges facing our planet today and in the future. Extreme weather events, sea level rise, freshwater resources, just to name a few. Laura Arachi is running a project that is gathering that data right here in Silicon Valley. AJAX is the Alpha Jet Atmospheric Experiment. It's a neat project we have here at Ames that takes advantage of some of our partners here at the NASA Research Park. And it gives us an opportunity to put atmospheric sensors on an aircraft and get measurements of sort of this California and Nevada area, maybe two to three to four times a month, depending on when the plane is available and when the pilots have hours that they can fly. 
So we measure all sorts of things like air quality in the Central Valley, where it can be really, really bad in the summer, Mm -hmm. um, to greenhouse gases that are emitted, say, from this natural gas leak that just happened down in Aliso Canyon. Yeah. It was near LA, right? Yeah, it was or, San Fernando Valley, just okay. north. Yep. Um, so that was for about four months. There was this horrible leak of methane that. gas. And so that's one of the sensors that we happen to carry on the Ajax payload. We have a sensor that measures CO2 and methane and water. We have another one that measures ozone and one that measures formaldehyde, plus okay. a wind pressure temperature sensor. So I'm guessing, are there multiple like ex- ongoing experiments and lab things going on? And so it's just a matter of when you're able to get up and get and get data sets or right so we have about maybe six or so science questions that we just keep queued up in the back of our brains and we wait for the right weather and we wait for the right satellite overpasses and when okay. everything when we find out oh we're going to be able to have flight hours on Thursday we pull out our planning sheets and we say okay which satellites are where what's the weather look like how hot is it supposed to be in Fresno and we figure out which science target matches best with the do flight you, opportunity. Do you always try to coordinate it so it's like at the same time as the satellite's going over, you fly at the same time? Is if that, possible, that's ideal. That's the ideal. But um, in reality, the satellite's going way faster than the aircraft, so they will only overlap for you know one or two data points anyway oh, out wow. of a whole two-hour flight. Oh, okay. So usually within a couple of hours, it's considered reasonable agreement. The air changes kind of slowly. Relative okay. to how fast the satellite moves, <laughs> yes. right? Yes, figure is kind of going. Yeah, even relative to how fast the aircraft moves. So we try to get within an hour or two. Okay. And since you've been working on the project, what have been some of the, what has surprised you, I guess? Or what has been like kind of exciting or, or even just being like, wow, I did not think that that was going to be a thing. Or, is it, or has it been more so validating what you are, what people had already expected? One thing we've been fortunate in an unfortunate sort of way to be able to do is to sample Mm -hmm. large wildfires. So we've had several large wildfires in California in the last handful of years, and they've been close enough to Ames that we've been able to go and make measurements of the emissions from those forest fires. Okay. And that's a a science target that's undersampled. So most of the emissions that you can look up and you know in these inventory databases that would predict what's emitted from fires in the west are based on prescribed fires okay but most of the burning that happens in the west By is prescribed actually, fires what exactly so the forest service will go out and do a small burn okay to clear some land okay. or maybe it'll be like um, grassland okay so so they mean to do they they're yeah. on purpose yeah, yeah, yes yeah. yes <laughs> yeah they're they pick them for uh, temperate weather conditions when they won't expand too yes, much okay. and so they'll controlled, try to burn but... something off in advance of it lighting on its own and going crazy. Okay. So the conditions are different than when something lights on its own and goes crazy. Yes. So the emissions are different. But yet oh, okay. all of our databases are built on primarily these, on, on these gentle controlled burns. Oh, okay. And so in the West, the databases are not terribly representative. So we've been okay. able to go out and get some measurements around about six or eight now different forest fires and you know right in the sierras where it's the true fuel mix okay. and get a better understanding particularly of how much methane is emitted from these fires because methane is a potent greenhouse gas as you know and it's not been well studied how that changes over time over the life of a fire okay. and from one fire to another nasa is with you when you fly every u.s aircraft and air traffic control tower uses nasa developed technology We're committed to transforming aviation by reducing its environmental impact, maintaining safety, and revolutionizing aircraft shapes and propulsion. 
Stuart Rogers works in our supercomputing division, but works on both new and traditional ways to conduct aviation research. So computational fluid dynamics, or CFD, is essentially the science of solving the mathematical equations that govern fluid dynamics on a computer. Okay. And the whole reason you would do this is sort of the same reason you might build a wind tunnel. So imagine anything that you might want to test in a wind tunnel to understand the aerodynamics or or acoustics or anything like that. You could also theoretically simulate it in a computer computer and get perhaps even more detailed information than the wind tunnel. However, the interesting thing is that the mathematical equations, they're nonlinear partial differential equations. Okay. (laughs) Very difficult to solve. Yeah. And it sounds difficult. (laughs) So it's, it's a, it, it at the time in the eighties, it was a, a a growing science and really the pioneers of this, uh, of developing the C- the software for CFD really worked at Ames. So many of the people that developed all the algorithms were here. Really? So before even like you, you set up these algorithms and you have the computer running these tests, the, did you have to study the actual, like, I, I'm sure there's actual hands-on tests of fluid dynamics where you submerge things maybe with dye or something like that. Did you have to like study through all that stuff and figure out the real deal first or how, how does that work? Well, it's, it's actually an interesting sort of split. I mean, as an undergraduate, yeah, you do a lot of uh, study of fluid dynamics and different things, including the wind tunnel. But when you start to specialize in in doing CFD, for example, all the people that work in CFD generally stay behind the monitor working on the computer, whereas all the people that are doing work in the wind tunnels are, you know, the wind tunnel jockeys that are doing their work in the wind tunnels. And so the great thing about Ames is that we have such great wind tunnel facilities and we have had for such a long time is that there's a real synergy between the two Um, and so the types of the type of work that we did as we were first developing cfd is we had to validate that we had to validate the models uh, in the first place and so we developed we worked with the wind tunnel people in a lot of instances to build a test Mm -hmm. that we could then simulate in the computer and compare the answers and make sure that we were on the right track. I mean, obviously, building a wind tunnel is like a big endeavor. Um, we have a couple, we have a few here at Ames, but even you imagine building this is such a thing. If you have a computer model that can accurately depict that stuff, then it's easier. <laughs> it's a matter of running running the system. Was the original? I mean, was the original intention to? kind of replace these wind tunnels? Is that what people were hoping for back in the 80s when they were first contemplating this? Or? Well, and, and that was really a big controversy. There was even a paper written by uh, some people at Ames that predicted we would be able to replace wind tunnels uh, within a certain time frame. And while CFD has matured tremendously and a lot of aerodynamic data that programs need are now being generated on the computer, you just cannot replace wind tunnel tests so they really work together. And finally, let's talk about the International Space Station, where NASA is literally working off the Earth for the Earth. The space station is a blueprint for global cooperation and scientific advancements, a destination for growing a commercial marketplace in low Earth orbit, and a testbed for demonstrating new technologies. The space station is the springboard to NASA's next great leap in exploration, including future missions to an asteroid and Mars. We close with veteran astronaut Steve Smith talking about real experiments on the space station and how they're making our lives better on Earth. 
I'm involved with our space station efforts to take experiments that have to do with largely with biology to the space station and make them successful. And that involves using some of my operational experience. It also uses some of my diplomatic skills to try and <laughs> make sure we get funding and that we use it correctly. Yeah. And that the incredible scientists and engineers here understand what the constraints are in terms of schedule and politics <laughs> and uh, funding to make it successful. So it's not only to make the current experiments that we do in space successful from Ames, but also to try and find new new experiments to do in space. For example, there are people here at Ames working on how do we do laundry in space. Okay. To use less water. How do you do laundry in space? <laughs> right now, we throw everything out. Really? Correct, yeah. The clothes don't get quite as dirty because they're not pressing against your body, so you can actually mm -hmm. wear them a little bit longer. But in general, when we're done with them, we put them into a vehicle that burns up on reentry. Wow. But we can't do that on the way to Mars. No. So okay. right now, we can send things to the space station quite often during the year, so we can send new clothes, for example. But on the way to Mars, which is a multi-month mission, so both ways, for example, using current propulsion techniques, it's about nine months each way. So you really can't resupply as much. So we're going to have to learn how to clean laundry. How to, to clean to Mars, it. correct. That's one of our smaller problems in terms of getting to Mars, by the way. <laughs> Amongst a, yeah. a slew of many problems yes. that people are working on. And there are benefits to that technology. If we can figure out how to use less water to do laundry, there's an obvious spinoff to help people on Earth where we can use less energy. Mm -hmm and resources like water to do laundry it seems it's like the, it's like the quintessential example of efficiency exactly. absolutely it's like all the resources that we take for granted here is like at the space station you got to make it work exactly and going to mars it's going to be even harder oh wow and so um if i understand it correctly we're like coming out of ames was it like 50 different projects Correct. that we're working on Correct. for iss somewhere between 40 and 50 they span a wide variety of interest areas but we are doing a lot for the United States here at Ames on these experiments. Yeah, I always say that was one of my one of my favorite meetings when I first came in was that you sat there and you went through PowerPoint slides of all 50 of right. you kind of went through and you kind of think that'd get boring after a while but you're sitting there like oh wow we're doing that that's pretty oh, amazing that's cool it's oh, pretty amazing oh that's that's fascinating one of the first things we're trying to do is get a list of everything we're doing at Ames to upper management here so that they can understand and be proud of the wide variety of things we do here. Wow. So what are some of the major programs right now going, some of the major science that Ames is doing and working it up through, you know, through the space station um, that the, the average person just wouldn't really be familiar with? Or? A large number of them are related to space biology. And what that means is okay. how do organisms like human bodies operate in zero gravity? And so that's one of the real expertises here at the Ames Research Center. So a lot of them are deep medical scientific type experiments to understand how organisms react. And if we can figure out how they react, we might be able to better life on Earth mm -hmm. because it helps us solve a problem on Earth. But we can also help send people beyond Earth orbit to, for example, to Mars. We also launched a lot of miniature satellites from the space station that try different techniques, technologies. And so Ames has a real expertise in small satellites. But we also have several basic technology experiments that people are working on, like the laundry in space, mm -hmm. that we will work on on the space station. Another good example is how do you compact trash efficiently yeah. and possibly reuse it for things like building things. So there okay. is one technology demonstrator here at the Ames Research Center that's trying to figure out what do you do with trash? Is there something we can do better with it than just throw it away. Yeah, is it, instead of sending it to go burn up in the atmosphere, Correct. is there something else we can do? Correct. We have to think like that because Mars is a long way away. 
Yeah. And so if we're going to be gone for two years, for example, we have to think about how we can do better with trash and potentially reuse it. We have to be better with our use of water. We have to be able to do laundry in space. We have to be able to um, offset the negative effects of radiation, things mm -hmm. like that. It's a huge number of challenges. Wow. So yeah, even just thinking of like the, the space biology part, I mean, just think of like so much of gravity that you just take for granted of the way that your blood flows and the way, you know, just your your eyeball for that matter. You know, I've even heard that like that when people go into space, they almost have a bit of motion sickness. Correct. How Correct. is that? Or well, it's not very pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> is it like a, like a car sickness? Sure. Like you feel it's like kind of yes. not too different, I, yes. I'm guessing? It, I can speak firsthand. That's exactly what it's like. Really? About, I think I've read about 60 to 70 percent of astronauts suffer from motion sickness when they're in space the first few days. The large percentage of those people eventually get better. It's just like having sea legs. You just get, it, you get used to it. It's like being on a boat. You feel bad maybe for an hour or a day, but eventually, eventually you get better. There are some people who never get better. But um, I can't imagine spending an oh entire boy. mission every day being sick. Yeah. Luckily, it's a small percentage of people who continue that. But some other physiology changes. Your eye uh, eyes actually change mm -hmm. shape a little bit because of the lack of gravity. So we have people who, who have different vision on orbit than they mm -hmm. do on Earth. So we've had to come up with special glasses, for example, that can be adapted. One of the mm -hmm. real negative effects of being in space is the loss of bone density mm -hmm. and muscle mass because you're not exercising. To move okay. around in zero gravity, you, you just fly all over the place. <laughs> so your body just atrophies. So we have wow. to exercise intently. I believe the average space station astronaut works out about an hour and a half per day for their entire mission just to try and keep Just to keep it going. going. And so when we go to Mars, that's probably not practical to take a mm -hmm. large exercise machine with you. Yeah, especially in a small journey. capsule, or depending on how little in the space constraints, you need enough space to exercise exactly. and to keep yourself. So is there some other way that we can fight muscle and bone atrophy? Hopefully, maybe through medications, for, okay. for example. And just in the last month, there's been an experiment on orbit with a large pharmaceutical company looking at that to see if we can use some kind of medication to fight that. And the spinoff benefits for people on Earth is really obvious. There mm -hmm. are people who suffer on Earth from bone atrophy yes, or muscle atrophy so if these medications can work for the astronauts bam we can How help people it? on earth oh, and so wow. that's what we call a spinoff and there's been thousands of them since nasa started in the late 50s thanks for listening to the nasa and silicon valley podcast we have more nasa conversations coming your way in the new year so don't forget to like star tweet retweet share and comment while we reach new heights and reveal the unknown for the benefit of all humankind